Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Welcome to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek. My guest today is Dr. Bobby Conway, who, as you may know, started the One Minute Apologist and is also a pastor himself. He just got his Ph.D., and we're going to talk at least some of the time about the issue of guilt. What does guilt tell us about God? Bobby Conway, what does guilt tell us about God? First of all, t- tell people what you got your PhD in and what <laughs> yes, your uh, Well, guilt tells us we need to be forgiven, right? That's we need right. to remedy this. Hey, it's good to be with you, Frank, and super stoked for the opportunity to chat for a little bit with you. Yeah, I finished the PhD a little over a year ago, maybe about a year and a half ago, and it feels really good to be done. I mean, it's just exhausting being involved in that kind of work. And in many ways, I think I just needed a break from studies. You know, I did the THM, which is a four-year master's degree, and then did the, you know, the doctorate of ministry that you did and took a little break and then did the PhD. And I think my wife was going to be like, look, I'm going to pack you in a suitcase and ship you off if you do any more degrees (laughs) because this has got to end. But no, I, I, I did it on the concept of guilt. And I think this idea of guilt is huge. It's important because it's something that we look at in our culture, just because the government makes something legal doesn't mean that it's right. So just because you don't feel guilty doesn't mean you're not guilty, right? I distinguish between guilt feelings and guilt standing. Um, You can feel guilty and not be guilty, that can be a pseudo guilt, or you can not feel guilty and actually build guilty, uh, which would be real guilt. But a healthy person should feel guilt when they are indeed guilty. So distinguishing between the fact of guilt and the feelings of guilt is important because you'll end up with people like our friend David Wood. He doesn't feel guilt but he recognizes the fact of guilt. One of the things that impresses me about David Wood, who would go to prison as a psychopath, taking a hammer to his dad's head. And I asked David, I said, you know, David, you didn't feel guilty, uh, but you recognized your guilt. You recognize that you sinned against God. And I said, what's amazing about you to me is I think about us as people. What would we seek to get away with if we knew we wouldn't have to feel guilty? You are living an upright life and you don't even have to worry about feeling guilty. You're doing it because the good is the right thing to do. And that made me really appreciate David and what he's up against. So what I sought to do, Frank, in my PhD, did it at the University of Birmingham in England, got to study under uh, the two heads of the department, David Cheatham and uh, Eugene Nagasawa, which is a huge honor. And I just loved the aspect of thinking through this concept of guilt. And the reason guilt was so important to me is because of how it plagued my life. I never heard the gospel till I was 19. And I was looking to get two questions answered. What do I do with my guilt? Because I collected a ton of it with the drugs, the alcohol, all the promiscuity with the women, the lying, the cheating, the running away. And then to hear the gospel presented at 19 
to know that it answers one of those questions that Jesus deals with my guilt and that Jesus came to offer me purpose, which was my other question. It was really encouraging. But the idea of guilt just stayed with me for a while. And I started thinking about our culture. And I feel like what's happening is we have to think through even how to share the gospel. Uh, Like if we go out and just start off with the gospel, we've sinned. People are like, what do you mean? What's sin? It's illegal. So we have to recognize even our approach to sharing the gospel in the church. It looks a little bit different because we have to break down people's assumptions. So what I sought to do is a thought experiment. Imagine you got an atheist and a theist, and both are going to have a conversation about this idea of guilt. What best explains guilt? And I sought to develop a research project where I developed a moral argument from guilt and developed different attributes that I think could be detected of God from guilt. So what would be an argument from guilt for God? Okay, so what I did is a chain argument. And so the first part of the argument is abductive, and the second part is deductive. Explain that difference to our audience. So the chain argument kind of starts off um, by letting people know that we're moving toward the best explanation Mm -hmm. for our guilt feelings. Um, And then a deductive argument, I mean, you're moving toward an established conclusion that if the premises are true, it'll fall, that the conclusion is true as well. I like the deductive approach uh, as it relates to kind of, hey, it really hammers home what we believe. Uh, it, it, it protects us from feeling maybe a bit agnostic. But I like the abductive uh, starting place because it allows for us to build a connection with people. So instead of kicking off with like the theological premise, you know, where maybe William Lane Craig does with his moral argument. What ends up happening in a situation like that, and I know like David Baggett is big with the abductive and Craig with the with the deductive, but there has been a little bit of a challenge that Baggett has brought up to Craig, which I think is fair. Like we all love Craig tremendously. Yeah, Dr. Craig is wonderful. I, you know, I've always, I've always thought about this. Maybe I just don't understand the difference. I mean, I do understand the difference between a deductive argument and an abductive argument meaning an inference to the best explanation. Whereas if the premises in a deductive argument are true, then the conclusion necessarily logically follows. But the wink link in that, it seems to me, is the premises are sometimes arrived at by abductive means, (laughs) by inductive, you know. Yeah. Like, well, obviously the classic argument is, that is given in logic is um, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. Yep. Now the conclusion Socrates is mortal is dependent upon that all men are mortal and Socrates is a man. And yep. today people are questioning whether Socrates is a man. Exactly. <laughs> you know, but um, yeah. what, do we have good enough evidence that all men are mortal? I think we do, but it's through abductive means. Yeah. It's it's just looking out empirically and seeing everyone I know. Uh, dies eventually, and it seems like everyone in history dies. I'm not 100% certain people in the future might not die. I mean, it seems like a a pretty reasonable conclusion to say we're all going to die at some point. And I know Socrates is a man, so therefore it follows. But you're still using an inference argument or inference uh, process, an abductive process to get to those premises. So what would the premises be for an argument for God from the existence of guilt? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And I would say 
David Baggett was one of my readers. Uh-huh. And one of the things that, you know, he was saying is, hey, I think it'd be great if you went abductive all the way through. Then I had my supervisor, Eugene Nagasawa, saying, no, I think you need to keep it deductive. In hindsight, uh, you know, you, you want to follow your supervisor. Yeah. But you had two supervisors I, going in a different direction. Yeah, yeah. Well, Baggett wasn't a supervisor, but he was a reader of it. Uh-huh. And I, I felt like I, I respect his work so much. I mean, Craig says, I mean, no one knows more about it. The moral argument than David Baggett. Okay, uh, and Jerry Walls is, is great on that as well. But well, first I, of all, state the state the moral argument just to be clear for people. Okay, so if universal guilt feelings, if universal objective guilt feelings exist, then there is such a thing as universal guilt that exists. Universal objective guilt. So what you're doing at the beginning in the objective time is you're saying, hey, there's such a thing as universal objective guilt feelings that we have. And by objective, we're saying that this is something that we can recognize cross-culturally. And also we can recognize when we talk about these feelings that just because you'll have a psychopath, that doesn't eliminate that. Like I'm colorblind, for example. I don't see color the way I should, but that doesn't mean there's no such thing as objective color. It just means there's a deficiency in that way. So we, we can't call on arguments like that to refute it because it doesn't go all the way through. So what I'm just contending is that there's such a thing as universal objective guilt feelings. Well, how do you know that the guilt feelings are objective if it corresponds to breaking a moral law? And so if there is such a thing as universal objective guilt feelings, right, uh, then there's such a thing as universal objective guilt. Then if there's such a thing as universal objective guilt, then there is, you know, a God who exists. And the nature of this God, we can learn different things about his attributes. For example, what does guilt tell us about God? Well, that God's personal. For example, an abstract object uh, could care less if I do right or wrong. Uh, in order to be offended, right, you have to be a person. Mm. So an abstract object isn't offended if we don't follow its, you know, virtue. Uh, it's yeah, if you it's if, a if, feet. I yeah, mean, yeah. If you cut down a tree, it's not offended. It's not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you yeah. if you break a rock in half, it's not offended. Exactly. Right. Okay. So God is a personal being, and so and not only that, when we when we sin, it feels personal because it is personal. Like we sense that somebody's been snooping in on what we're up to. That somebody knows what's going on, which would lead to the second thing, that guilt, universal guilt, recognizes that God is an all-knowing God or really powerful uh, set of knowledge, the knowledge that could account for everybody's sin because cross-culturally, right? It's universal throughout time, throughout the ages, throughout different continents. Yeah, you might have some cultures that are more shame cultures and some cultures are more guilt cultures, but that doesn't mean there's no shame in the guilt culture and no guilt in the shame culture. So you, so, so God, if he's going to be the one that's going to hold us accountable, and if he's a personal God who knows what we're doing, then he is aware of what we've done to hold us accountable. You can't hold us accountable unless you're aware of it. Mm. Another aspect that I think is really big is, is goodness. Guilt tells us that God is a good God. And I think this really can deal with uh, those who want to make an argument for an evil God. Uh, that just doesn't go through. Why? Why is it that I only feel guilty when I do wrong? Like it would seem if God is an evil God, uh, that I wouldn't feel guilty when I do wrong, but I would feel guilty when I do good, but I feel guilty when I do wrong. And it's because if I tell a lie, I can infer through the opposite that I feel guilty because God is truth. So God is truth. That's good. And we have broken his law 
uh, of telling the truth and we've lied. So I think that there's a lot that we can get at if we'll just look at our guilt that God's trying to tell us something about his goodness. Sure, yeah. So what our culture's doing, they're trying to let lower the moral bar so that we'll just legalize all this stuff and that's going to further separate us from it. Right, yeah. Many people think whatever's legal is moral and whatever's illegal is immoral. Exactly. The law is a great teacher. We cover that a lot in our first book, uh, Legislating Morality. And a book which it. I love, by the way, Frank. When I, I read that before I met you, and that book, I think, was fantastic. I mean, I wish... Uh, I wish everybody that's listening right now, if they haven't read it, would go and read it. Oh, thanks, brother. Yeah, that was the book. Really, it came out of a sermon Dr. Geisler gave where he pointed out all laws legislate morality. Everybody, <laughs> every issue is yeah. trying to impose a moral point of view. Even, you know, it's commonly thought only the pro-life people are trying to impose morality. They're trying to impose continued pregnancy on the mother because the baby has a right to life. But the pro-abortion people are trying to impose morality too. They think a mother has a moral right to choose what she does with her own body. What they're forgetting is... There's right. another body involved. And so they're trying to impose death on the baby whenever abortion's chosen. Both sides are trying to impose a moral position. One saying there's a moral right to life. Another says there's a moral right to liberty. Now, when you have a conflict between life and liberty, liberty must give way to life because the right to life is the right to all other rights. That's if you right. don't have life, you don't have anything. So yeah, in most cases, you have the, the, the right to control your own body, but not if you kill somebody else in the process. And so everyone's trying to impose a moral point of view. And everybody, as you say, with the possible exceptions of people that have some sort of uh, situation psychologically, like, uh, as you mentioned, David Wood, who is a self-described sociopath, so he knows murder's wrong, but he doesn't have the feelings of guilt when, if he were to try and murder someone, like he tried, as you said, to murder his father. That's why he went to prison for 10 years, and God even had a plan for that because he brought Nabil Qureshi to Christ in prison or after prison. He, he became a Christian in prison, and then he got out, and he met Nabil Qureshi and you know, <laughs> right. helped convert him. So, But I want to go back to something you said earlier. Uh, hmm. you, you talked about the difference between a guilt culture and a shame culture. What is the difference between those two? Well, when you think about guilt, guilt is something that is the result of violating a moral law that God has put in place. So, it's internal. It comes from inside yeah. of you or... It's, well, I mean, it, you know... God has you placed... Commit, yes. Yeah, he has placed, placed the moral, moral law on your heart. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't agree with everything Brene uh, Brown would say. You know, she's done her research on shame, but I think there's a distinction that she made that yeah. could be helpful for our audience. It helped me tremendously. Um, you know, shame says you are bad. Guilt says you've done bad. Good, yeah, good distinction there. And, and There's I a difference, right? There is a difference. Yeah. The part where I would, um, you know, maybe want to tailor that a little bit is the Bible does have room for shame. I mean, the Bible says we should feel shameful about things that we're guilty about. So my fear is that we're in a culture now where we're all shame's bad. There's things that I've done in my life that I should have been ashamed of. Um, it, it, there's a healthy shame and there's an unhealthy shame. If the shame is unhealthy, then I'm thinking that I'm just bad as a person. I have no value. And that would be the danger to think I have no intrinsic value because of an action I did. I still have intrinsic value. So that, that might cause somebody to maybe do the unthinkable and commit suicide, totally. which is a lie of Satan. Absolutely. That you are not a worthy being because you've done something wrong. Whereas yeah. 
Guilt would say, yes, you have done something wrong, but you're still a child made in the image of God, and God has provided forgiveness for you through the sacrifice of Christ. Yes. So there, that, that's the difference between guilt and shame, you would say, right? Yeah. Well, you, and then the, da- the, the danger of this, though, is, so John Hare is a, a philosopher at Yale, and he wrote a book called The Moral Gap, and he talks about this idea that the moral law that we've all broken and we're all guilty, there's this gap between, you know, us and this moral law that we've broken. So what are we going to, what are we going to do about it? What's the solution? Well, some people reduce the moral law down so that they can achieve the moral life that they want. So legalize all sin and that makes it convenient. And that's the way to deal with my guilt. Other people, they start trying to perform in order to live up to that standard, like you might see in certain cults like Jehovah's Witnesses mm-hmm. or Mormons. Um, and so he, he, he talks about how, you know, we come up with these naturalistic substitutes. Well, how do you close this moral gap? And this is where I think Christianity begins to walk. So I argue in my work philosophically from guilt to God, by, but I arrive at theism. But then once I get there... I say, of the theistic options, which option would best address our guilt? And then I argue apologetically from theism down to the cross. So we're going from guilt to God, and then we go from God down to guilt in the atonement, and Jesus clears our guilt. And the scariest part about where we are as a culture right now is we're living in a time where we're basically mass marketing a means by which people can feel okay about never believing the gospel by telling people you're not guilty, by you need no shame, there's no right and wrong. And so now you, you step back and here I am as a pastor and I'm going, okay, how are we going to reach a culture where many people don't even think they're guilty? Yeah, here's the here's here's the problem though. Those very same people will say you're guilty if you're a Christian and you don't believe in same-sex marriage. Yeah, we need or to be saved. Or you don't believe in transgenderism. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We need to be reformed. It's the new We're guilty. Yes. See? So everybody has some sort of standard that they're operating from, some sort exactly. of moral standard. The only question is, where does that moral standard come from? Mm-hmm. Is it just your own moral standard? If it is, it's not really a true standard. It's just your opinion. It's more of a preference. But if there's a standard beyond all of us, which explains why guilt is universal among human beings, with the exceptions we talked about when there's some sort of defect going on in conscience somehow, what exp- what best explains that? And that would be a moral standard outside of ourselves that we're obligated to obey. As you mentioned earlier, we're not obligated to obey a, a natural force or a natural, a natural entity uh, a rock or a tree or a stone or a piece of dirt, we're obligated to <laughs> right. obey yeah. a, a person, a being who is our creator and whose essence is good, and any deviation from that essence would, would, would be what we would call evil. If he doesn't exist, we don't have any obligations. We don't have any obligations. We don't have any rights. Everything's an illusion. Yeah, and see what you're saying, Frank? I mean, think about this then. I think we're creating our own gallows that we're about to hang from. Right now, these laws, you know, 2015 with the Burgerfell and all that, mm-hmm. this, this is newer stuff, right? I don't think that for a moment we should believe that the gospel's not 
powerful. Like Paul says, it's the power of God on the salvation for those who believe. I do think people are experiencing the early pleasures of sin and feeling okay about it. But here's the thing that we got to trust in. There's going to be consequences for following the actions that we're making legal. It's just going to take time. And once the consequences start emerging, the guilt's going to show up again. So it's like Joseph, right? He's sold off by his brothers. 20 years later, they're before him. Guilt has a way of emerging, even if it's two decades later, once consequences starting to hit. And I think that that's what we need to be praying for. Like, let the consequences come. Because like, that's the, the, like Satan never holds out like the, the consequences that are going to happen when you bite of the forbidden fruit. He just tells you what the pleasures are going to be. Well, we've bit the forbidden fruit of, you know, homosexuality, all things sexuality. We are a culture obsessed with our genitals. I mean, it is absolutely obsessed with genital expression. So much so that I, I, I don't even know if we realize how blind we are. There's going to be consequences. And we have to start asking ourselves questions like, well, why would God want us to be so-called Victorian in our morals? Well, how about this? There would never have been an STD had we follow God's moral values. Mm -hmm. Or how about this? There would be no broken marriages due to betrayal if we followed that. Or there would be trust. See, God wants us to have sex in a context because he wants us to be able to exercise self-control with our thought lives. He wants us to not be impulsive. He wants us to be able to, 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 to love somebody and put somebody else ahead of our own sexual desires. All that stuff is what makes the gospel so beautiful, mm. but we don't get there until we've been hammered by the consequences of sin. Yeah, there would be very few fatherless children. There yeah. would be very low welfare. There would be virtually no abortion. There would be uh, very few broken hearts. There would be, as you said, very few STDs, very few unwanted pregnancies, very few. And where would there be, would there be STD? Even like, like, cause some of the things you're saying are exactly right. Very few, very few. Mm -hmm. Cause you can think of situation. Yeah. I've tried to think about it, but maybe you could think I'm like, if we all just did, did it God's way, I, I don't know that there would be. That's STDs. right. Yeah, probably wouldn't. I mean, isn't that crazy. Yeah. 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 You're right. There That's are, a, that refutes their there, argument. There are consequences. There are. It also shows that when we have this guilt that there must be a moral standard that we're not obeying. And Christianity is the only worldview that actually uh, f gives us a way to avoid the consequences eternally of that, mm. of that behavior because Christ takes the punishment on himself. You know, I didn't realize this until recently, and it's going to sound like a radical statement. In fact, I'll get your impression on it or your opinion on it. God never punishes a Christian because he's already punished Jesus. Mm. He may discipline a Christian. Mm -hmm. That's something different, right? Mm -hmm. But he doesn't punish a Christian because that would then be getting two payments for the same crime. He's already placed all of that punishment on Jesus. So when we say, is God punishing me for doing X, Y, or Z? No, he's already punished Jesus. You may experience the natural consequences of, say, committing adultery or taking drugs or premarital sex or, you know, whatever it is. Sure. You may experience the natural consequences of it, but it's not God punishing you. It's the fact that you have violated a law and a law of nature that is going to actually hurt you in some way. But it's not God saying, you evil person, you're going to pay now. He's yeah. already done that to Jesus. I, I think that's a, a great point. Mm -hmm. I, I, I like the 
theological concept of remunerative justice. And this is the idea that as believers, that when we stand before the Lord someday, that he is going to praise you for the works that he did in you. And then we're going to take the crowns that he gives us and throw them right back at his Mm -hmm. feet. Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking, wow, that's a beautiful thing. It's like, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and that according to his good pleasure. Well, how do we put that together? Well, we work out what God's already worked in. And so it's it's like this thing of remunerative justice. God's going to praise us. But I do think, not from a standpoint of judgment, I do think, though, we're not even remotely aware of how much we've been forgiven of. So I suspect there's going to be this moment when we stand before the Lord where he will allow us to understand the full throttle of our sin, the details of it, the motivations behind it so that we can fully appreciate the gospel that's been given to us. See, I think about how thankful I am for a gospel I have, and I am so confused about how much more I've been forgiven of, how much more muddy my motives are. I think he's going to set me straight on all that for the purpose of knowing truth, which he values, not for the purpose of judgment. But this is where C.S. Lewis baffles me, Frank. Because, Why? Well, because it's like he's does such great apologetics in so many ways, but then he believes in purgatory and he's praying for the dead. And I'm like, you know, he talks, I'm like, he was an Anglican, (laughs) but it's like, it's like, don't you get the gospel? Like, why do we got to go pay for some of our sin? Uh Christ has already paid for them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, He has already paid for them. Yeah. In fact, uh, Greg, our Greg Kokel, our colleague here, we're at CIA right now, Cross-Examined Instructor Academy in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, Greg, in his book, uh, The Story of Reality, points out that Christianity is the answer to the problem of evil. Mm. Think about it, that's true. Mm-hmm. There would be no need for Jesus to come and be a sacrifice if there was no sin, because he's coming to take our sin upon himself. If there was no sin, why is he coming? What's mm. the point? Mm-hmm. He wouldn't have to come and save us from sin unless we have sinned, which means there must be a standard, and we know that standard intuitively. It's written on our hearts. But let me ask a, 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 another clarification question, because I'm sure when you got into the guilt issue, you probably at least looked in, to a certain extent, Freud. Oh, yeah. Right. What did Freud say about guilt, and how, is, how do we have a Freudian hangover, to a certain extent, <laughs> here in our culture today? What did, what did Freud say about this? Well, Freud uh, believed in what is known as a superego. So for Freud, when you look at like his idea, which by the way, like in his writings, it really bugs me because I feel like he's creating this whole narrative, this historical narrative, but he's not footnoting like where he's coming up with this idea of the sons that are rebelling against this over demanding father, uh, that they, they, they hate. And then after they kill the father, well, the father sort of resurrects in the form of a super ego in their conscience. Uh, the problem with the super ego is um, it it's exaggerated guilt. It's guilt with OCD tendencies. Like it, it's just meticulous about everything. It's almost like what you picture Martin Luther. I was going to say, Martin yeah. Luther, that's what I was thinking. What he was going through, right? Yeah, before, yeah. You know, as an Augustinian monk right. before he gives his life to the Lord. Um, so Freud believes in this superego and it, you just feed it and, and it just starts killing you. The problem is, is, is these sons apparently killed off their tribal father that was oppressive, thinking that that was the way they could deal. This father's always making us feel guilty. Let's kill him off. Okay, well, 
Now the problem is, is you killed the father off and now you've developed an invisible superego that's always watching you where the father wasn't always watching you. So they made their problem even worse, according to Freud. And this has led to all kinds of like sexual suppression because, oh, your superego tells you you're guilty if you act out sexually. So let's suppress this. And so Freud obviously was really problematic with this. And I don't think his solutions... Um, you know, he, he had some stuff about the unconscious that I think is interesting. Um, there's some stuff with dreams, but as far as the whole superego, even Nietzsche, um, I had to get into him and, and study him and Darwin, uh, looking at what Darwin had to say, like Darwin believed that, that we are different from animals in the fact that we're rational, uh, beings and we're moral. And he believed that if animals, um, developed like we do and could have the reflective capacity. So for Darwin, the reason we feel guilty is because we have reflective capacity. So we can reflect back on action A and discern if if it was okay or not, depending upon the consequences it caused. Yeah, but that caused. that presupposes still a standard. It doesn't it? Yeah. It, it, that's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So, so where does he get that standard from? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's just a system of trying to explain. Sounds like he's stealing from God. Yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> like he's doing that. But, 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 but back to Freud yeah. for a minute. Yeah, yeah. Didn't Freud say something like suppressing your sexual desires is your problem? Was that part of his? Yeah, yeah, his, that was a problem. His, his philosophy. Mm -hmm. and, and you seem to be saying that mm -hmm. much of the philosophy that he tried to present in his books was not supported, mm -hmm. at least in any way that he footnoted. He was just... He seemed to be making this up as he went. Is that what you're saying? I think that, well, I think the tribal story for uh -huh. sure. Um, like I don't see like historically, um, even, even in his genealogy of morals, like or you think of like Nietzsche. Um, and this is what the part was, this was, this is frustrating. Like when you're doing a PhD, yeah. it's like a, a Nietzsche, he, he's Nietzsche. So you can't hardly criticize the fact that he's erected this entire framework, but there's not really a history that you can see that corresponds to the history that he's erecting for the genealogy of morals or for the totem and the taboo. When you take somebody like a Freud, like I, I don't, I, I do, I think that there, that our guilt can be overreactive, of course. Uh, but I don't think the conclusions that he drew, well, where, where can we find proof that there were sons that killed a father? in history, uh -huh. right? Like, it just feels you, random. You can find, as Jordan Peterson always points out, Cain and Abel, the story of Cain and Abel, he's, he applies yeah. that story to everything yeah, he yeah, wants Cain, to talk about. Cain and Abel. And I love Jordan Peterson, but he seems to apply Cain and Abel to everything. It's a great story. It explains so much. Oh, uh, but in any event, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, Freud is, you seem to be saying the same thing with Nietzsche is as atheists, they have no foundation upon which to build any uh, sort of moral structure. It's simply, I guess, uh, just what their opinion is as to what people ought to do when it comes yeah. to sex and when, you know, when it comes to right and wrong. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the that preference. there's a, there's a big problem, you know, it's pull your boots up, develop mm -hmm. your own moral theory, be your own man. Um, but Those, that's, that's a that, problem. That's a moral claim too, though. It is there, a moral claim. There's some sort of moral virtue of being your own man, yeah. as if you're your own god and you get to do what you want to do. I mean, it kind of does swell the ego, you know. Yeah. Live your authentic self. You are enough. All that stuff. Yeah. But 
you and I, all the people listening, we're all going to die someday. We didn't create any of this. We're all going to go out of Nietzsche, existence. I will say, he's a mind screw. Uh, that, like when reading him, the first time I, I read uh, Nietzsche, it, it, I found myself thinking, what in the world is he talking about? Yeah, it's the like, second time I was like, um, I think this is what he's saying. The third time it was like, oh, this is what he's saying. The fourth time it was, I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you thought you were going to get there and you never did. Right. I mean, let's try let's, to gargle peanut butter. So you asking me to comment on Nietzsche, oh, yeah, I'm like, yeah. I, in, in some ways, I don't even, I'm not even convinced he knew what he was talking well, about. So I think he was just having fun toying with us did, in some ways. He did, he did obviously die of some sort of disease yeah. that affected his mind. Some say it was syphilis or yeah. he kind of went mad at the end. Some said it was his own philosophy, his honest philosophy that if there is no God, Everything's permitted, basically. Right. Uh, and it sent it, it made him mad. We've killed God. We're, how can the murderer of all murderers console themselves? Didn't he say something like that? Nietzsche? Yeah. Yeah. So it's it, it, some, some say Nietzsche was the only true honest atheist, where he actually tried to live the implications of atheism by saying there's nothing right or wrong. Everything's a preference. I get to do whatever I want. You get to do whatever you want. Oh, well. Yeah. Right? There's... Yeah, There's that, no meaning to life. There's no design to life. It's everything. And so, what he would say with guilt, then too, like Nietzsche, he comes along and says, "Oh man, guilt is what the clergy uses to control to keep you down, people." But you see, that's a moral principle too. That it's somehow wrong yeah. to control people. Yeah, good like, point, Frank. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So okay. Why I see, is it yeah. wrong to control people? Let's say the clergy are doing that. Yeah. Why is that wrong morally? If there's no God, it's not wrong. Yeah, you still have to give an answer to yeah. that. Yeah. You're using yes. power. You're simply using power. You can either uh, govern by power or principle. Those are the only two options. If you have principle, then you can say, here's why we're governing ourselves this way, because this is the right way people ought to behave. If there is no principle, if there is no standard, it's just my opinion against yours, then all you can do is say, I've got more power than you. I'm going to impose this on you, whether it's right or wrong, doesn't matter. That's right. Yeah. That's where we are. Let me ask you one other thing about sure. guilt. And that is, there's a lot of people listening right now that may have false guilt, mm -hmm. meaning they were abused early on in their life by some tyrannical person, and they may have been, say, sexually abused or, or have some other trauma in their life, and they think they are partially, if not completely, responsible for the way they were treated. Mm. What do you say to people like that? Frank, this is one of the reasons why I'm really passionate about mental health mm -hmm. in the church. Um, they didn't use the language mental health, for example, in the Bible. But as, he, as I'm teaching through the life of Joseph right now, I'm, I'm even recognizing some of his mental health issues. So, for example, the culture makes everything a moral issue. I've said this many times. Uh, or the culture makes everything a mental health issue. The church makes everything a moral issue. It, it can be one or the other. It can be both. Combination. And it can sure. be a combination. But thinking about mental health, remember when Joseph's brothers uh, are coming back? Mm -hmm. And he's, it seems like he's just playing games. He's with toying them. with them. He is toying with them. And, I, and, and by the way, friends, you want to read about this, you ought to read about it. It's in the latter chapters of Genesis. It culminates in, in Genesis chapter 50, but probably from about 37. What, chapter 37 yep. to 50. Just mm -hmm. read that whole section. Absolutely. Yeah. And okay. you'll see this, but yeah. I'm looking at it, I'm going, okay, not everything the Bible records means that it 
God's approving of, of it. Course. So it's like, I'm not looking at this method of going, oh, here's a great method. Next time somebody betrays you, try some of these, th- toy with them. Right. I think he's got his own, I think, yeah, he, he's trying to trust again, but it's ultimately God he's got to trust, right? But I think he's got a little PTSD. I think he's got some trauma and I think he wants to make sure. And I think that's normal. That's what we do when we've been traumatized, when we've been hurt, when we've been betrayed, some of our own human methods come into play in order to just, protect us from being hurt again. And I think you could see some of that mental health stuff there. I think that there's a lot of things that happen to people today that they're suffering from mental health. They've been told, oh, you're this or you're that. or You'll never amount to anything. You'll never amount to anything. You're, you're, you're yeah. a waste. Or just even take, for example, 25% of, of kids today, of, of Gen Zs, are struggling with their sexual identity. That is shocking. And and the research I've done, because we have it in the book, Correct, Not Politically Correct, is 62% of kids that declare themselves trans have some sort of other mental health issue, hmm. whether it's autism, depression, anxiety, ADD, whatever it is. There's yeah. some other issue going on that is now at least probably partially One responsible factor. for them saying, I'm trans. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, can you imagine like when we were younger, it was hard enough just figuring out your identity with two genders. Yeah. Now we've got a hundred and some gender identities that people are coming up with and they're having to try that on for size. More girls or teenage girls are uh, suicide attempts that are taking place. So all that to say, we have kids that are coming into our church, right? And you got parents, families, and this whole issue. And if we just hit them hard with you've sinned because you're sexually confused well there's we need to distinguish between sexual behavior and sexual orientation mm-hmm. and so it's very plausible that some of these kids that are struggling they're they're not acting out they're just really really confused and the reason they go to lgbtq plus movement is because they want to belong right and they're validated so what we got to figure out what to do is to not say it's legal uh you know go ahead and act out the, the whole sin thing we need to hold what is right, wrong, what makes one guilty. But we also need to realize that culture is pressing in so hard on these kids that moms and dads, if they're having conversations, they don't even know what to do. So we've got to figure out a way to create process in the church, to coach the parents, to coach the kids and to not shame them while they're just exploring their feelings. Mm. And then we need to let them know, yeah, if you choose to act out, then that's sin. But if you're just on the inside looking in the mirror wondering, hey, something's not working here, we need to figure out how to help people. That's right. It's normal to feel odd when you're going through puberty because that's what (laughs) puberty is. It's a big, long transition from childhood to adulthood. So it's normal Mm. to feel odd. That's a good point, Frank. And you ought not... You ought not make rash decisions when you're in the middle of a transition period because you're going to come out the other end of this if you allow the process to go through. You're probably going to come out whole. In fact, 80% of kids that declare themselves trans as teenagers, by the time they hit 18, they're back to their biological sex. They, they're, they've, they've grown out of it. So it's absolute madness to try and transition kids. Yeah, why, do you think, why do you think that politicians and medical doctors want to do this to well, the kids. You know, I don't know. I just... it, it, first of all, there's a money motive, a yeah. huge money motive. Sure. Uh, the people that try and transition never get off the cross-sex hormones. It's impossible. They never completely transition. Their body is always going to try and take them toward their biological sex. So they have to stay on those, those uh, the big pharma drugs their entire lives. Secondly, and 
the man who identifies uh, as gay that I've been talking to recently is Dave Rubin. You know Dave Rubin, mm-hmm. who does uh, a uh, a show called The Rubin Report. And uh, Dave, although identifying as gay, is conservative on a lot of issues. And uh, he points out that after the Supreme Court decision that imposed same-sex marriage on the entire nation in 2015, you would have thought the human rights campaign, the biggest same-sex LGBTQ advocacy group in the nation, would have closed their doors and said, we won, we got what we wanted, but they couldn't. Why? They still needed the money to come in. Mm -hmm. They still needed a new cause. They needed it. Activists needed to be activated or stay active about something. And so they took up the trans cause to keep the money coming in. This is according to Dave Rubin, who identifies as gay. He's saying they're not with us, he says, right? He says, in fact, not just him, but I've been saying this. If the T's get their way, the the, the L's, the G's, and the B's don't exist. Because if there are no fixed genders, how can you be lesbian, gay, or bisexual? They rely on fixed genders. So, so let me flip the table. Yeah. I know this is you're the you're, you're interviewing me, but let me ask you a question uh-huh. because uh, I would love to know your opinion on this. Where do you think where do you think it's going to go with the, with the, with the T? Well, I'm hopeful that it's going to reverse itself as it has to a certain extent in the UK because in the UK. They had gender clinics earlier than we did, and they started to try and transition minors who have now grown into their 20s, and those minors are now suing those gender clinics, saying, what did you do to me when I was a teenager? Mm. I, you, I couldn't give you informed consent. I was a teenager. I was in the middle of puberty. Yeah. And you cut off my breasts? Right. You cut off my penis? You did what? Yeah. And so now these gender clinics are closing. If for no other reason, they know they can't survive the lawsuits that are coming. And it's mm. beginning to happen in America now. Yeah. And I think... And June was more toned down. I, I was happy to see some of the pushback of these moms right. with Target and right. some of this stuff. Well, that's like, a, that, it just that, gets old. That's another thing, Bobby, that I think <laughs> the overextension of this movement into grooming children has started to awaken parents. Parents generally, whether they're, you know, they're just kind of trying to make a living. They're not paying close attention. Oh, fine. You want to, uh, you want to, uh, you know, get married and live a a life of happiness. You think you can do that? I'm not going to stand in your way. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. You know, uh, if it's all live and let live, go ahead, do, do your own thing. Now, we know there are problems with that, but a lot of people just go, yeah, I, I, I don't care, go ahead, do it. But when they start coming for children and they start coming for your children and they start saying that uh, they want to teach this to your kids and they want to have some, some man come in and twerk some drag queen in front of your kid and then they want uh, to have the government possibly take your child from you because you don't affirm their gender, you don't give them cross-sex hormones or, God forbid, surgery. When that happens, when the government's threatening to take away your kids, as the Biden administration now is, people are starting to wake up. Mm. And hopefully this madness will go away. And the feminists are now allies on this as well. 
because if there are no genders, there are no women. And if there are no women, there are no women's rights. So someone like J.K. Rowling, who wrote yeah. the whole Harry Potter series, is going, I'm sorry, I'm basically liberal, but you're erasing women. Did you get a chance to hear that podcast series? Which yet? With who? Uh, J.K. Rowling. They just did one recently, uh, and I found it was, somebody told me about it, and uh -huh. I heard it talked about a whole lot, but it was her thoughts on this thing. It was about eight parts, and it was just her talking about this whole transgender thing. I haven't heard that yet. But when you think about the ridiculousness, though, mm -hmm. of twerking some guy dressing up as a woman coming in twerking on our kids well a lot of people sit around and think that's cute but here's the irony i would bet my last dollar that if the little johnny's mom came in as an actual straight woman and did a lap dance on johnny's classmates right everybody would be outraged but when the drag queen does yeah. it it's cute yeah right well, I think even most people are going, this isn't right. Yeah. <laughs> you ought yeah. not be doing this. Yeah. These are children. Leave the children alone. Yeah. That's, then they're not leaving the children alone no. because the only way to keep the movement going is to recruit. They can't reproduce their way yep. and perpetuate the movement. They have to recruit. And tragically, that's what's happening. And so hopefully, mm. this will end. Hopefully, um, people will start to feel the guilt about this because they have been suppressing the guilt. That's what Paul talks yeah. about in Romans 1. People suppress the truth and unrighteousness That's to go their own really way. That's a really good transition, Frank. Do you see what he did? Did you hear what he did, those what that are listening? <laughs> he just took our main topic, and you know you're interviewing like probably uh, maybe the second or third most ADD guy in the world. <laughs> so you're like, okay, we talked about guilt. Bobby just kind of pinged over this way. Now we're going to bring it back, back on. Back to guilt. And the aviator comes through and brings us back <laughs> All right, in. Well, leave, leave our audience with one final thought about guilt. People are struggling okay. with guilt. What do they do? Well, we talked about Cain and Abel yeah. uh, for a moment. And interestingly enough, in that story, uh, the Hebrew word minha is the word for offering. And so when you're reading it, you can read past this little pericope really quick. And it's like, man, what, what's the deal? I mean, wh why, why is all of this, um, you know, so disappointing to God? Well, it says that Cain brought his minha and it says that Abel brought his minha. So they both brought an offering to God, but yet God accepted one and didn't accept the other. Well, what was the difference? Well, one Cain, he brought his leftovers to God. Hmm. The other Abel, he gave the first fruits, the fatty portions. He brought God his very best. He knew that God was a holy God. He knew that he was sinful. He knew that God was worthy of his best and he brought God his best. And guess what? Re religious canes, self-righteous canes, jealous canes, they can't handle that. And so what do you do when you're a jealous person? You got to get rid of the object of your jealousy. So get rid of the true worshiper. What's the message that I would say? Well, I would say that Jesus is the ultimate minha. He is the offering of God as God in the flesh, giving himself to God the Father on our behalf. And if you feel guilty today, uh, don't see that as a bad thing. See that as a good thing. Uh, to ignore your guilt if you feel it today, would be as stupid as ignoring the check engine light when it's on. There's a message, and God is telling us it's time to get in the shop. I'm the mechanic. I want to fix you up, and I want to send you out with a new ride. It's called justification, where your mm. sins are forgiven. I love it. Bobby, where can uh, people follow you online? I mean, yeah. so some of the videos 
that you do appear on our yes. our YouTube channel, the Cross Examine YouTube channel. But what's your website? Where can people learn more? They can go to ChristianityStillMakesSense.com. Okay. Uh, I, a little rebranding. I've changed it from One Minute Apologist. Uh-huh. My YouTube channel is now Christianity Still Makes Sense. My website, Christianity Still Makes Sense. I've got a book coming out with Tyndale. I've already written it, just waiting for it to come out next April. Okay. Called Does Christianity Still Make Sense? All right. And it's basically going to have a biographical component where like the near apostate explains why Christianity still makes sense. Uh, because I feel like if anybody ever, I personally, I'm not saying that people aren't out there. Mm-hmm. I just don't know of a friend that I have that I'd say that's been hammered more by doubt to the point where I thought, man, I might be really finished here. Mm. And to see God graciously bring me back, remind me of the gospel and to be where I'm at right now, I want to encourage people. So to go to Christianity still makes sense because it does still make sense. Absolutely. And it makes sense of why guilt is universal. And there is a sacrifice that will cover our punishment or cover our guilt, that Jesus will take our punishment on himself. So please share this podcast with other people, ladies and gentlemen. If you don't, you're guilty. See you. <laughs>